Thanks for listening to Dark Histories. Before we start, I just want to take a second to thank all the people who support the show and help make it sustainable, both on Patreon and by signing up to Audible via the Dark Histories affiliate link. You can find links to both of those in the show notes if you're interested, or you can help out just by sharing the show with people who you think might be interested, on social media or with all the good people you might know. Alright, let's get on with the episode. Cheers. Go then, my little book, as a lackey to the more elaborate essays of those learned men. Go tell mankind that there are devils and witches, and that those night birds lest appear where the daylight of the gospel comes, yet New England has had examples of their existence and operation, and that not only the wigwams of Indians, where the pagan powwows often raise their masters in the shapes of bears and snakes and fires, but the house of Christians, where our God has had his constant worship, have undergone the annoyance of evil spirits. Go tell the world what prayers can do beyond all devils and witches, and what it is that these monsters love to do. This account of Devils and Riches, written by Cotton Mather, a New England minister published in 1689, tells the story of Anne Glover, an Irish emigrant and of four children from Boston afflicted by demons. The story precedes the Salem witch trials by four years. It's a stepping stone between the witchfinder general and his trials in England and the Salem witch trials in America, with links and ties to both. Theirs is a story of demonic possession and witchcraft in the harsh environment of the new world. This is Dark Histories, where the facts are worse than fiction. Hello and welcome to Season 2, Episode 22 of Dark Histories. I'm Ben and I hope this finds everyone in good spirits after a fantastic Halloween. I hope you enjoyed the bonus episode as much as I enjoyed writing it as well. That was really good fun. This week, we're going to be taking a look at some more tales of demonic possession and witchcraft from 1688. This time, however, it's going to be on American soil. But before we get to that, as usual, I just want to thank the new patrons for their support. Those signed up last couple of weeks include Robin, Mike, Nathaniel, Courtney, Laura, Gavin and Hermione and Leslie. So thanks very much, guys. I know these kind of little shout-outs, they might seem a bit flat, but, you know, I genuinely appreciate all your support. So thanks so much for coming aboard. And I also want to give a quick mention that next month I'm going to be taking my sort of annual little break for a few weeks over Christmas. And during that time, I'll knock together a little Christmas campfire episode just like last year. So if you do have a creepy story that you'd like told in that episode, write in to me via email at contact at Dark Histories and I'll include it. And that was a fun kind of little bonus episode to do over on my Christmas break last year. So, you know, hopefully you guys will bring the goods again this year. Uh, with that all said, let's get on with the episode. This week, we got Devils and Witches, Anne Glover and the Goodwin Children of Boston. Founded in 1630 with a heavy Puritan-based population, Boston, Massachusetts was built upon the ideals of religious freedom that the original Holy Commonwealth had left the shores of England with when they travelled to America to found the Massachusetts Bay Colony. These religious settlers had at first dug roots in Charleston. Though its soil was good for farming, it lacked a consistently available water source, and so the settlers moved across the river 
in 1630 to build the foundations of the town that would become known as Boston in September of the same year. For the population of Boston, theirs was a destiny with a self-professed closeness to God. This closeness they would prove over the following decades, as the citizens carried out persecutions against those whose religious views would differ from their own. One example being the many Quakers who suffered publicly by the hands of the Puritans. In the early days of Boston, the local economy was focused around farming and selling food to the richer southern tobacco colonies, as well as a robust shipbuilding, whaling and fishing industry, which held claims to the first sailing ship to be built on American soil. This basic economy made Boston a great degree poorer than the southern colonies, who had cash crops in abundance, and survival throughout New England for the early settlers was tough going. Whilst the economy of Boston lacked great wealth, however, it made up for with a degree of stability. Despite several outbreaks of smallpox over the 50 years after its founding, the population of Boston flourished and sat at around 4,000 in 1676. This was an outcome not enjoyed by the earlier pox outbreaks that had killed over two-thirds of the Native American population only 60 years prior. Boston's growth could in no small part be attributed to the religious fundamentals it was founded on. Rather than a colony built on extractive wealth, that is, an economic model and society built on export, the residents of Boston had every intention of staying in the area to build a new life, with its own fully functioning, firmly rooted societal establishments. This was demonstrated early on in its founding, when Boston became home to America's first public school, the Boston Latin School, which opened in 1635. One year later, a college was founded, and two years after that, the college was given a name, today instantly recognisable the world over, after a local benefactor named John Harvard died, leaving £776, a vast sum at the time, akin to a not untidy fortune, and a hoard of over 400 books to the institution. The strong roots supplied by the early institutions set up in Boston, along with the constant stream of fresh arrivals from England, helped the colony to go from strength to strength, and by 1688, Boston was home to 7,000 residents. The colonists were smart, hardy, and working tough shifts to survive in the difficult environment, but for them it held a deeper, affirming and spiritual purpose that lacked in the purely extractive colonies. Of these 7,000 residents, John and Martha Goodwin and their six children carved out their own small existence. John Goodwin was born in Charleston, Boston, Massachusetts in 1645. He had followed in his father's footsteps to become a mason, and he had married Martha Latrop, a lady seven years his junior, who had also been born in Charleston in 1652. Both John and Martha were from the familial line of Puritans who had fled to America from England due to religious persecution. John Goodwin's father had moved to Boston in 1633. His grandfather was Daniel Goodwin of Yoxford and had been a rich landowner in the Protestant stronghold of Suffolk, which lies in the eastern English district of East Anglia, the stomping grounds of Matthew Hopkins, Witchfinder General and an area of England that saw thousands of Puritan families leaving to seek a new life with the freedom to practice their religion as they wished throughout the first half of the 17th century. Martha's family too held a similar background, if not more extreme. 
Martha's grandfather, the Reverend John Latrobe, had been arrested on religious grounds during the reign of King Charles I and was only released from prison on condition of foreign exile. So it was that John Latrobe, along with his family, including his son and later Martha's father, found themselves aboard a ship bound for the New England colonies in 1635. Martha's father would later become one of the founders of Barnstable, Massachusetts. First-generation immigrants, by 1688, a new family had settled in Charleston and had six children. Their eldest child, Nathaniel, aged 17, grew up to follow in his father's footsteps and worked alongside John as a mason. The family also consisted of their eldest daughter, Martha, aged 15, Mercy, aged 7, Benjamin, aged 3, and the youngest, named Hannah, who was just one year of age. The life of the Goodwin family is, up until the summer of 1688, one of quiet normalcy. The children enjoyed a religious education, and John Goodwin went about his business as a mason, teaching his trade, and his father's trade before him, to his eldest son Nathaniel. They lived a pious life, and endured to follow their spiritual path with a strict self-discipline. It was a singular, almost offhand encounter during the summer, however, that would flip the life of the Goodwins upside down and enter them into the pages of religious writings for years to come. One evening, the Goodwins' eldest daughter, Martha, was organising the family's linens when she noticed that an item was missing. She took it upon herself to visit the neighbour, the daughter of an elderly Irish woman named Goodwife Goody Anne Glover, who worked as the family's washwoman to inquire about the missing item. Anne did not take kindly to this affront on her daughter's character. Feeling accused of thievery, she bestowed very bad language upon Martha and sent her on her way. That might have been the end of the story. Anne Glover, being an Irish Roman Catholic, had a rather unfortunate reputation in the neighbourhood, however, and as such, it was merely the beginning. Anne Glover was born in Ireland during the early years of the 17th century, where she lived with her husband up until the invasion of Ireland by Oliver Cromwell in 1649, kicking off the Cromwellian War. Prior to the fighting, Ireland had suffered a difficult period of rebellion, warfare and plague, and as Cromwell and his men rolled ashore, they sought to pile on the misery. Whilst it can only be estimated, and poorly at that, a figure that moves between 20-40% to 40% of the Irish population were either killed directly by the English armies or indirectly through prolonged disease. Those that weren't outright killed were displaced and their land ownership removed. Many of those unfortunate to be caught up in the whirlwind, though fortunate enough to have survived, were transported to England's recently developed colonial enterprises on Barbados and Montserrat. The English were using the Caribbean islands to foster sugar and tobacco plantations, and these plantations were in need of a workforce. As was the spirit of the day, the Irish Catholics recently dispossessed of home and land by the English in Ireland served the purpose well enough for the colonials. Along with 50,000 other Irish, Anne Glover and her husband wound up being deported aboard merchant ships bound for the profitable isles. The Glovers were headed for Barbados, where her husband was later killed for failing to denounce his Catholic belief. After her husband's death on Barbados, Anne's history becomes unclear, 
though by 1680 she was living in Boston with her daughter and working as a housekeeper to the Goodwin family. Rumours had spread that as her husband died, he denounced her as a witch, and she had become known around the neighbourhood as a hag by those that thought little of her, and as a despised, crazy, poor old woman by those sympathetic towards her. In such an environment, especially one that treated the Irish Catholic minority with barely concealed resentment, her outburst towards Martha Goodwin could easily have acted as a primer to a powder keg, ready to blow up into something entirely disproportionate. All that would be needed was a small spark. Shortly after the confrontation between Martha Goodwin and Anne Glover, Martha fell ill, convulsing in fits, apparently more violent than any epilepsy. Soon after, two of her brothers and her sister also fell ill, so that in total, four of the Goodwin children, Martha, Mercy, Benjamin and John, were affected by pains in their bodies, all in the same place. Only Nathaniel, the eldest son, and Hannah, the baby, escaped the fits of pain. The local doctor and friend of the Goodwin family, Dr Thomas Oakes, was called in to inspect the children. He was told by the children that the pains were sharp as lightning, though even in their swiftness, each child felt the pain at the same time as the other, even when they were not together or one's pain was unknown to the other. This left Dr Oakes to form the only natural conclusion. Nothing but a hellish witchcraft could be the original of these maladies. Over the following weeks, the children's symptoms grew progressively worse until they were suffering from so many different ailments that witnesses spoke of how it would take almost as much time to relate them all as it did to endure them. Sometimes they would be deaf, sometimes dumb and sometimes blind, and often all this at once. One while their tongues would be drawn down their throats, another while they would be pulled out upon their chins to a prodigious length. They would have their mouths opened unto such a wideness that their jaws went out of joint, and anon they would clap together again with a force like that of a strong spring lock. The same would happen to their shoulder blades and their elbows and hand wrists and several of their joints. They would at times lie in a benumbed condition and be drawn together as those that are tied neck and heels and presently be stretched out, ye drawn backwards to such a degree that it was feared that the very skin of their bellies would have cracked. They would make most piteous outcries, that they were cut with knives and struck with blows that they could not bear. Their necks would be broken so that their neck bone would seem dissolved unto them that fell after it, and yet on the sudden it would become again so stiff that there was no stirring of their heads. Yea, their heads would be twisted almost round, and if main force at any time obstructed a dangerous motion which they seemed to be upon, they would roar exceedingly. The children would suffer these bizarre symptoms throughout the day, until around 10pm at night, at which time they would promptly cease, allowing the children to rest and recuperate until the symptoms struck again, sometimes days, sometimes weeks apart. One of the main witnesses to these events, and the author of the original source material on the subject, was the minister Cotton Mather. Cotton Mather's father, Increase Mather, was a powerful Puritan clergyman of the time and president of Harvard, as well as theologian and writer. He had already displayed an interest in demonology and witchcraft in his writings on the matter, published in a work titled Remarkable Providences, published four years prior in 1684. 
Cotton Mather supported his father's beliefs and visited the Goodwin children to pray by their side on several occasions and to document their symptoms. He prayed for their health for hours at a time, though he noticed that as he did so, the children would fall deaf to his words until he finished his prayers, at which time they would become able to hear again. At other times, he found that as soon as a Bible was picked up and inspected by anyone in the room of the children, they would scream with anger until the book we placed away. The children's ailments were relatively widely spoken of, and soon the Goodwin family were offered many superstitious cures, snake oils and family remedies for their children's ailments. As a religious family, however, they decided it best to continue with Cotton Mother and to treat them with prayer. Speaking privately with Mother, John Goodwin arranged for a day of prayer to take place in the household, and Mother duly obliged, enlisting the help of the four ministers of Boston alongside the minister of Charleston and various devout people from the neighbourhood. The ministers led a day-long prayer service at the Goodwins' home, involving meditations, fasting and prayers, the result of which was semi-successful, noted for delivering John, the youngest son, aged just three, free from his troubles. After this day, no one in the family saw him suffer or show any signs of symptoms or sickness, nor any tales of what were now being quietly spoken of by the ministers, in agreement with Dr. Oakes's earlier diagnosis as potential demonic possessions. The strange events happening over in the Goodwin home could, of course, only fail to be kept quiet, and it was not long before higher authorities would take action concerning the rumours they heard. The magistrates of Boston visited John Goodwin to inquire about his children's sickness and to inquire after any suspected persons surrounding the demonic diagnosis of Dr. Oakes. John Goodwin was not shy in supplying the name of his neighbour, Anne Glover, and she was immediately called to present herself to the magistrates. Upon meeting with the authorities, she was promptly imprisoned on account that she had given such a wretched account of herself. Goodwin had no proof that could have done her any hurt, but the hag had not power to deny her interest in the enchantment of the children, and when she was asked whether she believed there was a god, her answer was too blasphemous and horrible for any pen of mine to mention. An experiment was made whether she could recite the Lord's Prayer, and it was found that, though clause after clause was most carefully repeated unto her, yet when she said it after them that prompted her, she could not possibly avoid making nonsense of it with some ridiculous deprivations. Ignoring the fact that English was more than likely not her first language, if she spoke it at all, it was enough to damn Anne Glover to a prison cell. While she waited her trial under lock and key, the cold snap of autumn fell upon Boston. All the while, the three Goodwin children continued to suffer the same bizarre maladies that had been haunting them throughout the summer. As Anne Glover's trial for witchcraft began in November of 1688, she faced the court led by Cotton Mother. It soon became apparent that the hearing was to be anything but straightforward when, as proposed by Mathers himself, through some sort of charm, Anne Glover was unable to utter a word of English. She addressed her charge speaking her native Gaelic, which required the aid of two honest and faithful men to act as interpreters between Anne and her accusers. Through these interpreters, rather than plead innocent, Anne Glover confessed to being a witch and an order was given to search her house. From whence there was brought into the court several small images or puppets, 
or babies made of rags and stuffed with goat's hair and other such ingredients. When these were produced, the vile woman acknowledged that her way to torment the objects of her malice was by wetting of her finger with her spittle and streaking of those little images. When asked if she had any persons that would stand alongside and support her during trial, she replied that she had, and looking very pertly in the air, she added, No, he's gone. And she then confessed that she had one who was her prince, with whom she maintained I know not what communion, for which cause the night after she was heard expostulating with a devil, for this thus deserting her, telling him that because he had served her so basely and falsely, she had confessed all. However, to make all clear, the court appointed five or six physicians one evening to examine her very strictly, whether she were not crazed in her intellectuals and had not procured of herself by folly and madness the reputation of a witch. Diverse hours did they spend with her, and in all the while no discourse came from her but what was pertinent and agreeable. Particularly when they asked her what she thought would become of her soul, she replied, You ask me a very solemn question, and I cannot well tell what to say to it. She owned herself a Roman Catholic, and could recite her paternoster in Latin very readily, but there was one clause or two always too hard for her, whereof she said she could not repeat it, if she may have all the world. In the upshot, the doctors returned her compus mentis, and sentence of death was passed upon her. Sentenced to death, she was led back to jail to await her punishment. During the days between the conclusion of her trial and her execution, she was visited by a woman named Mrs Hughes, whose son had been suffering the same demonic symptoms as the Goodwin children. Mrs Hughes had given testimony against Anne Glover, telling a story that her neighbour's neighbour had at one time before her death told the first neighbour of how she blamed her demise upon Anne Glover and of how she had seen the old lady climb down her chimney at night. As soon as she gave this testimony, her son apparently fell ill. Her son told her of how he too had seen a figure in a blue cap climb down the chimney in their house and attempt to rip out his bowels with his bare hands. Mrs Hughes asked Anne Glover why she tortured her son and Anne Glover replied that she had done so because of how Mrs Hughes had done wrong by her and her daughter. The conversation continued. I was at your house last night. Says Hughes, in what shape? Says Glover, as a black thing with a blue cap. Says Hughes, what did you do there? Says Glover, with my hand in the bed, I tried to pull out the boy's bowels, but I could not. Mrs Hughes denied any wrongdoing towards the old lady, and Anne Glover conceded to end her tortures against her son. From the next day onwards, his symptoms were said to have lifted. During this same period of limbo for Anne Glover, Cotton Mother visited her twice in prison to pray for her and to deliver her from her evil. Of her current predicament, he later wrote that She never denied the guilt of the witchcraft charged upon her, but she confessed very little about the circumstances of her confederacies with the devils. Only she said that she used to be at meetings, which her prince and four more were present at. As for those four, she told who they were, and for her prince, her account plainly was that he was the devil. Whilst Mathers writes of her confession as being plain, he then mentions, rather tellingly, that she entertained me with nothing but Irish, which language I had not learning enough to understand without an interpreter. Anne thanked Mathers for his prayers, 
though he then states that as soon as his back was turned, she would torment a stone, a clear sign of witchcraft apparently, though he does admit after condemning her that, whom or what she meant, I had the mercy never to understand. Anne Glover was held in prison until the 16th of November 1688, when the day of her execution fell upon her. As she walked to the gallows, she told of how her death would do no good for the children's situation. There was, Mother wrote, one other involved in the witchcraft. Though he does not name this second suspect due to the lack of evidence and fear of tarring an innocent with an unwelcome reputation. His forethought in this case may have been appreciated by the supposed unnamed suspect, but it did little for Anne Glover, who stepped onto the wooden platform, placed her head in the noose, and was hung for witchcraft in the streets of South Boston. With the supposed perpetrator now dead, one might imagine that the Goodwin children's ailments would be lifted, however, unfortunately for all involved, that was not to be the case. In fact, their symptoms only worsened, going as far to be likened to possession by evil spirits. As autumn turned to winter, dark happenings were falling over the Goodwin's family home. The fits of the children yet more arrived onto such motions as were beyond the efficacy of any natural distemper in the world. They would bark at one another like dogs, and again purr like so many cats. They would sometimes complain that they are in a red-hot oven, sweating and panting at the same time unreasonably, and none, they would say, cold water was thrown upon them, at which they would shiver very much. They would cry out of dismal blows with great cudgels laid upon them, and though we saw no cudgels nor blows, yet we could see the marks left by them in red streaks upon their bodies afterward. And one of them would be roasted on an invisible spit, run into his mouth and out of his foot, he lying and rolling and groaning, as if he'd been so in the most sensible manner in the world, and then he would shriek that knives were cutting of him. Sometimes also he would have his head so forcibly, though not visibly, nailed onto the floor, that it was as much as a strong man could do to pull it up. One, while they would all be so limber, that it was judged every bone of them could be bent, another while they would be so stiff that not a joint of them could be stirred. They would sometimes be as though they were mad, and then they would climb over high fences beyond the imagination of them that looked after them. Ye, they would fly like the geese and be carried with an incredible swiftness through the air, having but just their toes now and then upon the ground, and their arms waved like the wings of a bird. One of them, in the house of the kind neighbour and gentleman, flew the length of the room about twenty foot and flew just into the infant's high-armed chair, none seeing her feet all the way touched the floor. Diverse times they went to strike furious blows at their tenderest and dearest friends, or to fling them downstairs when they had them at the top, but the warnings from the mouths of the children themselves would still anticipate what the devils did intend. This led Cotton Mother to take the eldest daughter, Martha, into his care, in his own home, in order to document her sickness and to attempt to deliver her from the evil that possessed her. This at first seems to give Martha some temporary relief, but eventually, as she would profess to Mother, the devils found her again. Martha found herself unable to read any religious text, or even be in the presence of another that was in possession of a religious text. It would kill her to look into any book that, in my opinion, it might have been profitable and edifying for her to be reading of. These experiments were often enough repeated, and still with the same success, before witnesses not a few. Besides the aforementioned owls returning upon her, 
She would often cough up a ball as big as a small egg into the side of her windpipe that would near choke her, till by stroking and by drinking it was carried down again. At the beginning of her fits, usually she kept oddly looking up the chimney but could not say what she saw. When I bade her cry to the Lord Jesus for help, her teeth were instantly set upon which I added, Yet child, look unto him, and then her eyes were presently pulled into her head so far that one might have feared she should never have used them more. When I prayed in the room, first her arms were with a strong, though not seen force, clapped upon her ears, and when her hands were with violence pulled away, she cried out, They make such a noise, I cannot hear a word. She likewise complained that Goody Glover's chain was upon her leg, and when she essayed to go, her postures were exactly such as the chained witch had before she died. But the manner still was that her tortures in a small while would pass over and frolic succeed, in which she would continue many hours, nay, whole days, talking perhaps never wickedly, but always wittily, beyond herself, and at certain provocations her tortures would renew upon her till we had let off to give them. But she frequently told us that if she might but still or be drunk, she should be well immediately. Things continued in this manner for days upon days, ebbing and flowing as Martha went through periods of calm and normalcy, interspersed by severe bouts of possessions. She began to ride an invisible horse, taking a riding position in her chair and appearing to clock out entirely to an otherworldly plane, visible only to herself where she rode to meet and commune with three beings which she said were the cause of her troubles. These fantastical adventures were punctured with bouts of pain, as Martha claimed to have an invisible ball and chain wrapped around her ankle. An invisible chain would be clapped about her, and she, in much pain and fear, cry out when they began to put it on. Once I did with my own hand knock it off as it began to be fastened about her, but ordinarily, willing it was on, she'd be pulled out of her seat with such violence towards the fire that it has been as much as one or two of us could do to keep her out. Her eyes were not brought to be perpendicular to her feet. When she rose out of her seat, as the mechanism of a human body requires in them that rise, but she was one dragged wholly by other hands. And at once, when I gave a stamp on the hearth, just between her and the fire, she screamed out, though I think she saw me not, that I jarred the chain and hurt her back. On the 27th of November, Cotton Mather held a further day of fasting and prayer at the Goodwin's house with all children present. It was a violent and dramatic affair. The ministers exhaustively prayed for deliverance whilst the children were miserably tortured. The deliverance was, however, a success. Following the events, the children's possessions lessened with every passing day until their suffering ceased altogether. Only on two occasions was anything further documented when two days after the day of prayer, Martha suffered a desperate attempt at an attack on her life. Once, they were dragging her into the oven that was then heating, for there was none in the room to help her. She clapped her hands on the mantel tree to save herself, but they were beaten off, and she had been burned if at her outcries one had not come in from abroad for her relief. Another time, they put an unseen rope with a cruel noose around her neck, whereby she was choked until she was black in the face. And though it was taken off before it had killed her, yet there were the red marks of it and a finger and a thumb near it, remaining to be seen for a while afterwards. Martha stayed for the rest of the winter of 1688 in the house of Cotton Mather. 
though eventually her own ailments too receded entirely. By the spring of 1689, the Goodwin family's children were entirely cured and their lives returned to one of peace and quiet. The case of the Goodwin children and the trial of Anne Glover and an important precedent to the later witch trials that took place in Salem in which both Cotton and his father Increase Mather would play central roles. Historians have pointed towards the events in Boston and of the Goodwin children as a direct influence on the events and one of the main precursors. Nevertheless, in common knowledge, it remains a tale overshadowed by the latter infamous trials. Whether or not you believe in demonic possession, witchcraft, or any other spiritual influence that might have affected the Goodwin children, it seems likely that Anne Glover was the unfortunate victim of a society founded on ideals of religious freedom, yet one that acted in direct contradiction as they sought to carry out their own injustice and persecution. Many have since suggested that Anne Glover could speak very little English at all, and that her mad ravings were in fact her simply speaking her native tongue, which the Puritans could little understand. It has even been proposed that the small handmade dolls supposedly of the Goodwin children and found in her house during trial were in fact the dolls of Catholic saints rather than tools of witchcraft. It's certainly no stretch to imagine, rather grimly, exactly how just and honest the interpreters were during the trial, or if they were competent at interpreting in the first place. Anne Glover's story is as tragic as the Goodwin children's is bizarre. Fortunately, history has judged her rather more kindly than the courts of 1688, and in 1988, to mark the tercentenary of her execution, the Boston City Council declared November 16th Goody Glover Day. Perhaps the most truthful contemporary account of the entire affair is that of Anne Glover's only established sympathiser, a Mr. Robert Califf. Califf was a prominent Bostonian merchant who said of her trial and execution, Goody Glover was a despised, crazy, poor old woman, an Irish Catholic who was tried for afflicting the Goodwin children. Her behaviour at her trial was like that of one distracted. They did her cruel. The proof against her was wholly deficient. The story of Anne Glover and the Goodwin children of Boston, ladies and gentlemen. We'll uh, dig into a little bit of that, because there's certainly a lot to dig into after these short advert breaks. Forbidden history, grisly ghosts, monstrous cryptids, and harrowing folklore dominate Japan's history and culture. Mysterious Japan is a bi-weekly podcast presenting these spine-chilling horror stories, urban legends, and unbelievable histories in a campfire story format. Many of these tales have never been presented in English before. Our journey takes place where dark history and supernatural folklore collide. Mysterious Japan is produced, written, and translated by recognized Japan expert Dr. Heath Having. Season 1 relates the unbelievable legends and ghost stories from the so-called suicide forest. Listen to Mysterious Japan for free on Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Learn more at our website at themysteriousjapan.com and be transported by unbelievable stories where the lines between reality and folklore become blurred in the shadowlands of Japan. Once again, that's themysteriousjapan.com.
As mentioned at the start of the show, Dark Histories is an official affiliate with Audible.com. As an affiliate, Audible has given us the chance to offer our listeners a 30-day free trial, and that includes an audiobook of your choice. I've actually been a member of Audible myself off and on for over a year or so now, so I'm pretty happy to advertise the service. For those that don't know it, Audible is an audiobook subscription service that gives you one credit for every month you're a member. You then go ahead and you spend your credit on any book that you like, and if you decide to quit your membership or put it on hold, you keep all of your old audiobooks. With our link, audibletrial.com forward slash darkhistories, you can sign up for a free month, and that includes a free audiobook of your choice at the same time. If you don't think it's for you at the end of the month, you can cancel your subscription before the 30 days are up and you've lost nothing, you've gained an audiobook, and you've helped to support the show. So if you think that sounds like it might tickle your fancy, head over to audibletrial.com forward slash darkhistories and sign up for your 30-day free trial. Ads are a the butt, right? So do you want to know a good way to avoid listening to them? If you sign up to Dark History's Patreon, you get ad-free versions of the show with early access to episodes, access to bonus content, stickers, exclusive discounts on the t-shirt store, and all that other good stuff. You get content from me, you get videos, I give like little running commentary and behind the scenes of the show. And by being a member, you're directly supporting the show. You can sign up for as little as $1 per month, and you can help make Dark Histories the best it can be. For more information, check out our website at darkhistories.com, or pop over to the Patreon at patreon.com forward slash darkhistories. Right, enough of all that. Thanks for listening, and let's get back to the episode. So Anne Glover and the Goodwin children, I think when we talk about this, or when I think about it, it's good to kind of split it up into two stories in a way. For the purpose of the discussion, it's kind of good to separate Anne Glover from the events. Because, well, I mean, let's just make it clear, like, Anne Glover clearly had nothing to do with it. She was obviously just an unfortunate victim of religious persecution and ignorance and bigotry. Um, You know, and I think it's fairly obvious uh, the fact that no one that dealt directly with her with any power could even speak Irish um, and the manner, the way they speak about it, you know, they, the way they speak about her talking Irish, you could see that just from the words they were using, how they looked down upon like the fact that she was speaking Irish. It was so obvious that she was dealt with with quite a bit of contempt, undoubtedly part of a Catholic minority in a Puritan stronghold. So you can see where the accusations of witchcraft um, have come from, really. Uh, Mather himself calls her, at one point, an idolatrous Roman Catholic. So, yeah, you know, I think it's fairly obvious that Anne Glover was really a, a very unfortunate victim of the whole story. I also doubt her confession on the way to being hung that there was a second person that Mather wouldn't name. I think he probably put that in there to cover himself because he knew that once they would hang her, that, you know, nothing would stop because it had nothing to do with her. And I think he knew that. And I think he did it because otherwise, why would he suddenly have this 
bout of forethought to not name her? Why would he have this sudden, oh, you know, I, I shouldn't name her in case she gets done innocently? You know, well, he didn't extend that privilege to Anne Glover at all. So I'm fairly sure that that name, that, you know, the unnamed second suspect, uh, I'm fairly sure that wasn't real and was just covering the fact that if the children didn't get better after she was hung, it wouldn't sort of come back to him as, you know, falsely accusing her or falsely condemning her to death. So yeah, no, that, that's my thoughts on on that. And the fact that he even says, I think he said there's the line, Goodwin had no proof that could have done her any hurt, but the hag had not power to deny her interest in the enchantment of the children. So, so he even says, you know, they literally had nothing on her. And you can see in other accounts as well, so most of this comes from the same account, which is Cotton Mother. But there are other accounts. There's one from 1890, A History of New England by John A. Palfrey. And he he calls her a poor washerwoman, defending herself unskillfully in her foreign gibberish. It's, it's, it sort of shows everything about it, really, doesn't it? And all her you know, blasphemous words and all the rest of it. You know, was it really truly blasphemous words or was it just the fact that she was speaking Irish and they couldn't understand her? I think that was much more likely the, the truth of it. And I, I found it very interesting that they thought that her dolls might actually have been of Catholic saints rather than witchcraft tools. And they just kind of put two and two together and came up with five. And I think they did that quite a lot with her, basically. I think, you know, were the interpreters, okay, so how just and honest were they? Were they were they truly honest? Or were they just saying what Mather wanted to hear? Or, you know, could they even speak Irish? He doesn't say where they were from or, or anything. He doesn't say who they were. So they were just two interpreters, Sounds to me like maybe they got some things right because she said about, they asked her, have any that would stand with you? And she said that there was four, her prince and three others, I think she said, or her prince and four others. But again, could these not have been, could her prince not have been God and could the four others not have been saints? When you consider things like the the dolls, if the dolls were dolls of saints, it doesn't take a great deal of imagination for an interpreter to have interpreted half of that sentence oh yeah she says there's some people that stand with her and there's four of them but then instead of saying god and four saints just saying the devil and you know four demons it's it's, it doesn't take a great leap of imagination so i think that part of the story is really solved even in his own words he almost condemns himself really it's very damning his words about Anne Glover, I think when you look at it in retrospect, it's fairly obvious that she was just a sort of very poor, unfortunate woman that got mixed up in a society that didn't tolerate outsiders or or people, you know, practicing a different religion. And that's about that. Um, And then sort of split it up and take a look at the second part of the story, which is the kind of demonic possession stuff. That's obviously where so then we start looking, did this really happen or not? And was it, as, again, you look at the time, and it's, it's very similar to the Nellie Butler haunting, and it's not so different to, although that was much many years in the future, 
it's not so different to the exorcism episode that we did with Anna Eklund. These religious people that wrote these texts with all the sort of documentation about what happened, they've got a kind of horse in the race, if you like. They're invested in proving that this stuff happened. And in this case, their horses, their, you know, their, their belief in, uh, in an immortal soul and the rest of it. So, you know, at the time, again, it was sort of, again, they were pushing against materialism and things like that. So you always have to eye these texts, although they're old and they look impressive because they're written in this kind of oldie-worldy English you've always got to sort of view them through the eyes of the times and the eyes of the times were that these people had a certain degree of invest vested interest in proving this stuff so did it happen or did it not happen it's tough because it's way it's like wading through a sea of bull to try and work it out I, i i i love the idea that it might be true because so again, some of the imagery, a bit like the Anna Eklund episode, and especially the the, the Nellie Butler episode, that I, 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 as a kind of horror fan, I suppose I, I I like the imagery of possessions and things like that. Especially when you're sort of going back to those kind of 1600s and stuff, you you get that kind of settlers in the New World that are very kind. You know, everything's a harsh environment, a harsh life. And then you've got this on top, this kind of demonic possession on top. The imagery is just, I mean, it's, it just feeds into a fantastic horror kind of idea. But did it really happen? It's so hard to say yes or no, isn't it? Obviously, you've only got one account and that one account is unfortunately heavily biased. But, you know, it's interesting. And I think it's certainly something... It's 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 more likely that this happened than Anne Glover being the reason for it happening. Put it that way. <laughs> I think you know that that that's the Anne Glover section of it is done and dusted. You know, she obviously had nothing to do with it, but whether it actually really happened is a whole different story. I I'm inclined to believe that it probably didn't, but that's. Again, I've sort of mentioned it a few times and I don't want to sort of bring it in every time, but in these stories, it is an important aspect is that I'm not a religious person. I never grew up religious um, and it's not that I'm like a heavy atheist either. It's just that I just never grew up around the possibility of these things being true. So for me, it's quite easy in a sense to say, oh, you know, it probably didn't happen. But I'm very aware, probably best better through since starting this podcast that there are people who grew up in the kind of in a religious environment where these ideas of demons and devils are are actually fair you know okay you know fairly i wouldn't say run of the mill or normal but you know they are part of their religious education i suppose and you know a very something that could very very easily be true in in their belief system so, you know, I, I don't want to just write it off. It shows a certain degree of imagination if it didn't, which I suppose is interesting as well. I found the, the, the ball and chain and the, 
imagery of someone coming down a chimney to be quite interesting. Some of it you can sort of write off to be like almost fever dreams. Like, for example, when they're being, you know, stabbed with stomach pains and they, they felt someone come down the chimney and try to pull their bowels out with their bare hands. And you kind of think, well, okay, that's not too far from like a fever dream. If, if say, they were ill from some sort of vi- like viral infection or something, um, you know, perhaps they had, these kind of fever dreams but some of the other things you know they talk about them flying over fences and across rooms it's, it's quite interesting and, and I, the, probably the most interesting part of it that I found was the ball and chain around her foot that she could feel and the descriptions of her getting bruises and cuts they, they didn't see anything that would cause the bruises and cuts but they saw the bruises and cuts happen and probably the scariest one for me, the scariest sort of part piece of imagery was the when she was trying to be when she was trying to be hung on the noose, and they found um, handprints and a thumb mark around her neck that stayed for some time after. I think they said, you know, that's quite um, quite a terrifying image, and if that didn't happen it seems like quite small details to put into a larger story i don't personally have too much doubt but i found that to be quite interesting you know to insert these kind of smaller details that's sort of it it, it sort of makes you sometimes sort of step back and think oh okay you know that's, that's fairly unusual to include something like that when you look at their imagination on other things, like for example, there was the her riding the horse around, and I can fairly sort of easily see that just being a child's imagination. But the the things like the handprints around the neck suddenly being there when they weren't, and it, you know that leads you to sort of question it, uh, and that's interesting. And it's yeah, I, I wonder. I suppose yeah, I, I don't know if it could have happened or not. I say I'm inclined to be sceptical purely because of the authorship of the documentation being so easily attributed to someone's in, you know investment in it being true. But yeah, anyway, I thought that was I thought it was an interesting story. I thought it was a good story and and one that I I, I will look forward to the live stream and talking about for sure. I've also sort of noticed that I've more or less unwittingly set myself up for a trilogy here because we had the 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 initial episode to deal with witch trials, which were the English witch trials with the Witchfinder General. And then this episode obviously ties into that one where you've got all of the Im- like em- immigration from East Anglia to to the Massachusetts Bay Colony. And now you've got like the setting up of Boston in this episode. And then obviously part three is, is going to have to be, you know, all, all roads lead to Salem, basically. So I, I guess somewhere down the line, I'm going to have to sort of cap this off with an episode on Salem. So yeah, I, I guess that's what's going to be coming at some point down the line. And then that'll be a, a nice little kind of witch, witch trial trilogy, I guess. But yeah, other than that, I thought it was an interesting story. And I, I do, I, I love reading through the old texts. They get a bit heavy sometimes. And I, I appreciate that sometimes 
hearing quotes, someone read quotes from these old texts can be a bit of a heavy going, but I, I, I find novelty in them and I think it's good to read them in their original sort of English, despite it being quite challenging at times, um, just because I think it really adds to the story and it adds to the history of it all, because that, that, that's the sort of stuff that really interests me, I guess. I did find it quite funny that the quote about how she could only read good books and one of the quotes was that uh, presently she was had so there's a quote that I thought was really funny that I didn't include and it was presently she was handled with intolerable torments and that was how she was handled with intolerable torments when she was handed a good book uh, which was like a bible or a religious text and then he goes on to say but when I showed her a jest book as the Oxford jests or the Cambridge jests she could read them without any disturbance. I quite loved that. It was like, despite everything that was happening, despite all of the demonic possessions and all the rest, like this lot, they weren't above a good joke. You know, so the Oxford jests or the Cambridge jests, I'd love to have a look at those two books. I bet they're a right barrel of fun. Um, <laughs> yeah, I can imagine them being incredibly cringy. Uh, but yeah, I, I thought that was great that, because you tend to get an impression in your mind of these settlers as being, you know, hard life and struggle and challenge, it's very rewarding for some and I'm very unfortunate for others and all the rest. And you forget that in between all that was just real life. And, you know, you had these joke books, these the Oxford jests and the Cambridge jests, you know, these, these jest books, as they were called, like. You know, and these were just people living normal lives, and that 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 I I found that say it's it's quite flippant in a way, but actually, when you think about it, I don't know. I just found that fascinating. It's it's a nice reminder that despite these kind of imaginations you have of those colonial times, that, that people were also just living, you know, normal lives, and they were regular people. And and actually, despite being three four hundred years apart from us now, they were still reading lowbrow joke books. I like that. I thought it was good. So, yeah, I mean, I say I think that's about it. I say I think when you look at Anne Glover, I think it's fairly obvious she had nothing to do with it. And I think, you know, there's there's enough evidence just in her text that he wrote himself that kind of damns him as being a, a, a bit of a sort of ignorant bigot that was persecuting the Roman Catholic Irish old lady for no reason. And I think he even he clearly didn't have too much conviction on her guilt but he just went with it anyway because hey she's an old hag the demonic side of it whether or not it's true or not i don't know and i think it's something i'll look forward to talking about in the live stream next week i guess uh yeah i think it's um my own thoughts on it uh, that it probably didn't happen but there's enough in there that makes me sort of think oh they're interesting little details so yeah, I'll, I'll probably leave that there and uh, yeah, we'll move on. So let's do some emails. I need a jingle for this really, don't I? Or do I? I don't know. Maybe in season three, we'll see. I got an email from Sean. Uh, Sean suggests that Dark History's tagline was changed to where the facts are darker than fiction. He says that it's a bit flat, the the whole, this is Dark History's where the facts are worse than fiction. Um, Sean, I absolutely agree with you. And the funny thing about that was that at the time I, I wasn't really something that I gave very much thought about and I, I just kind of said it off my head you know I was recording the first episode I was just like oh you know welcome to Dark Histories where the facts are worse than fiction 
and it's basically ended up being stuck ever since. And at this point, I'm kind of a bit of afraid to change it, I guess, because it's become the kind of, you know, the end of all the kind of intros. Um, but, you know, I do agree with you. It is a bit flat. And I think something like where the facts are darker than fiction might be a little bit more interesting. Maybe, you know, season three is coming up again, like I say, so it's going to be starting in the new year. So it might be something that I can adopt going forward. But thanks very much for your emails. And I, I do appreciate your, you know, your suggestions and your kind words as well. I got an email from Amanda who provided me with a link of a property website. And it had a ton of pictures of the house from the Spider-Man of Denver episode, including loads of like interior photos and things like that. So thanks so much for that link, uh, Amanda. I did show the pictures off a little on the live stream and obviously I gave Amanda credit for that. Um, but I just wanted to say thank you really just for sending that in. It was really interesting. I, I hadn't seen those pictures actually. They, they were kind of modern day pictures of the house, but it was still interesting. Um, and I'll try to get that link out. Perhaps I'll, I'll do it on Discord um, would be the best way to kind of spit that out um, so that people can kind of have a look as well. So yeah, thanks, thanks very much, Amanda. And I also got a fantastic email from Rory, which is really long and I'm not going to read it now um, because it's really great. But it's exactly the sort of thing I, I mentioned earlier at the start of this episode that I would love to receive for the Christmas campfire special. So, yeah, Rory, I'll get in touch with you about it and see if you're all right with that being included in the Christmas campfire episode. But Rory also wrote, your podcast, aside from being a labour of love that clearly shows through in the content and delivery, takes me back to some of the most magical adventure-filled days of my life, and I'm supporting your work by sharing it with as many people as possible. Cheers, Rory. That really does help, actually. I'll probably at some point send along some buffalo wing sauces that you wouldn't be able to get your hands on over there. Perhaps in exchange I could get you to send me some brown sauce, which I also miss. Yeah, absolutely, Rory. Definitely. I'm up for some sauce trading. We'll do a bit of a exchange on that. I'm a hundred percent behind sharing the love for a bit of brown sauce. So yeah, yeah, definitely. So if you'd like to get in touch with me, you can do so. Contact at darkhistories.com. I do my best to respond to everyone, sort of personally in through the that does contact me through emails. It, it can take a little while because I usually do my kind of email admin work during my lunch breaks at work. So you know, if you haven't heard from me yet rest assured I will get back to you as soon as I, I read it basically so yeah you can either say get in touch with me contact at darkhistories.com that's the email or you know we're on social media everywhere twitter at dark histories facebook at dark histories podcast instagram is dark underscore histories or you can just go to darkhistories.com and all of the social links are there as well as a link to our discord which is a really cool little community we've got going. If you want to come over to the Discord, have a chat. It's really a great place. Everyone's really friendly. Uh, it's useful because it's where we arrange for all of the live streams. Um, so, you know, if you want to be on the live stream or if you want to just know what's going on with the live stream, it's quite a useful place, even if that's all you do. But it's a really nice little group and everyone there has a nice time sort of writing and talking to each other about you know similar topics for the show but also just all sorts we've got like a film and documentary recommendations thread so people just talk you know can recommend good films 
that they've seen uh, that not always to do with dark histories, but sometimes, for example, I kind of myself sort of teased a little kind of, oh, you know, this week might be a good idea to watch this film. And I posted the trailer of The Witch and things like that. And over Halloween, we obviously did a big kind of horrors that we enjoy and vampire films that we've enjoyed. Um, Girl Walks Home Alone at Night. I posted things like, oh, you know, that this is one of my favourite vampire films. So, you know, we talk about all sorts over there. And it's really nice. Yeah, you can jump on. Everyone's really friendly. Everyone's super nice. It's actually, actually everyone's really, really nice. Um, and when I, you know, started thinking it would be nice to get a little kind of community, um, I, I couldn't imagine that it, it would have been as successful as it has been and, and the people being as nice as they have been. And, and, you know, fingers crossed, we've had no issues with kind of trolls or anything. So it's been... It's a really nice community. So if you want to jump on the Discord, you can head over to darkissues.com and all the information's there. It explains it. If you're not sure what it is, it's basically just like an app um, that's sort of like a private forum, basically. Um, and yeah, that, that, you know, jump on there. Everyone's really friendly. Everyone's really welcoming. If you want to support, that's amazing. Um, we've got Patreon and a coffee. Again, contact, if you just go to darkhistories.com, you'll find all the information about that. Um, it's patreon.com forward slash dark histories. If you want to go direct to the patron and check that out, you get, say, some pretty cool little perks, mostly sort of ad free versions of the show and early access versions of the show, stickers, postcards, things like that. But in general, you know, um, you don't have to support. It's obviously a free podcast, but if you do, it really does help and you get those cool things. Again, in December, I'm going to be taking sort of a month off, sort of just, you know, my yearly kind of annual two or three weeks off. It'll be from about mid-December till kind of the first week of January. And during that time, say I'll do a kind of Christmas campfire bonus episode. So if you want to get your stories in for that, again, con- email, contact at darkhistories.com, send them in. I'll narrate them and bang out like a at least one episode if we get more, enough stories. It'll be a couple of episodes and I'll put them out around Christmas time as a kind of fun Christmas kind of campfire. Because originally, you know, very traditionally and people sort of forget now, I guess, with Halloween and stuff, Christmas used to be the time to tell ghost stories and creepy stories to each other. So, you know, that's what they did on Christmas Eve was sit around the fire telling creepy stories. That's why you've got things like Lewis Carroll. And Henry James, the turn of the screw, things like that. You know, they, they, they're all sort of, you know, traditionally sort of when Christmas was a time for telling ghost stories. So that's kind of the idea behind it is, you know, we're, I'll, I'll release these kind of Christmas creepy story episodes that will be your guys' creepy stories. So yeah, if you want to send your story in, contact at darkissues.com. Just let me know if you want it to be anonymous or if you want me to credit you. I, that either way is totally fine with me but just let me know because if if you don't say if you don't let me know if you want it to be anonymous i will i'm not going to give out like you know your email address or anything but i will just say your first name um if you'd rather keep your first name a secret just just say in the email somewhere you know please keep me anonymous and, I, and i'll obviously do that so yeah thanks very much for listening it's been a pleasure as always i hope you enjoyed the episode and i'll see you at the live stream next saturday or in two weeks from now uh, with the next episode. So thanks very much. Take care. Stay safe. Sleep tight.